Okay, we're talking today, we're continuing our discussion of um, the halachas of uh, respecting a shul, what can be done in the shul, etc., etc. So, we, um, as advertised, we are talking about guns in shul, uh, which is an interesting discussion, especially uh, recently, where, or more recently, where I think it's become something that people, um, you know, feel that maybe it's necessary, or... If people who usually carry a gun, they feel like maybe they could start carrying on Shabbos. So I think it's, it's important to make like a disclaimer before we even start that in a place where it's dangerous, so let's say in certain parts of Israel or whatever, we're not really talking about that because there you have the element of pikuach nefesh, it's, it's in people's lives, and that always kind of overrides any other, um, you know, factors. Here we're talking about just a regular case where, yes, there might be an element of self-defense involved, but for the most part, it's, it's being done either because this is a person who, I was just talking to my brother actually, who takes this course as well um, in New Haven. And he was telling me there's a whole bunch of guys in the Chabad community there who just regularly carry guns. And so on Shabbos, they, too. what? Right, I'm sure. Um, and so the question kind of is like, so what's, what's the deal with that? Is that okay um, in terms of carrying um, a gun if regularly you do and you want to just start carrying on Shabbos as well? Um, obviously, you have the factor of an Eruv. We're, we're kind of, you know, we're assuming that that's all in place, and now we're discussing the Shul itself. Okay, so we're going to see tonight that the, in Halacha, um, the, because communication wasn't the way it is today, and also printing and availability of Sfarim and stuff wasn't the way it is today, so issues and stuff crept into the literature of halacha, which sometimes cause problems or cause confusion. And we're going to see that um, tonight. So let's see, we're going to see it right now, actually. The Gemara says that a person is allowed to enter into shul with his wallet and his walking stick. Um, on yes. On okay. Yeah. They, we, no, no, so not, not necessarily on Shabbos. Oh, Anytime. Yeah, a regular time. Just a person who's coming to shul, his wallet and his walking stick. Now, um, the Orchus Chaim, who is an early Rishon, now just, you can familiar me with the idea of a Rishon. Rishon was basically talking about different kind of um, uh, periods of um, like halachic tradition. So the Rishonim were those who lived basically between the 10th century and the 14th century. And they have a certain status because since they were at like earlier times, so they are, have, their words have kind of more weight. So the Orchus Chaim was a Rishon, um, and he writes that one cannot enter into a shul with a long knife because that shortens life. And davening and shul and things of Kedusha are meant, are, are meant to connect one with the source of life. And therefore, they're, they're really they're a contradiction. So this is what he writes. Now, connected to that, the Beis Yosef, the Beis Yosef who is the author, author of Shulchan Aruch, again, he wrote the Beis Yosef as kind of like the the backdrop of the Shulchan Aruch. So the Shulchan Aruch is written short, shorthand, just the laws. The Beis Yosef is kind of the background to the Shulchan Aruch. So in the Beis Yosef, he brings, in connection with this Aruch he brings what Rabbeinu Peretz writes. Rabbeinu Peretz was also a Rishon. Rabbeinu Peretz writes that also one cannot walk into shul with an uncovered head. Now the question is, how do these two things go together? You're talking about walking to shul with a long knife, and then you're telling me, oh, by the way, also don't walk in the shul with an uncovered head. Like, what's the connection? 
So the Maimur Mordechai, who is a later Achrin, so we have a Rishonim who lived in that time, Achrin means lived after that, um, this is like the 1700s, 1800s, he writes that over here there was, a, there was a, a, a printing mistake. The mistake was, it shouldn't say that uh, you're not allowed to come into shul with an uncovered head. Rather, Rabbeinu Peretz is qualifying what the Arches Chaim is writing. So Arches Chaim is writing, you're not allowed to walk into shul with a long knife. Rabbeinu Peretz is saying that's only if the, the knife is out in the open. It's not covered. But if it's covered, then no big deal because it's not being you know, out in the open in a place like a shul. So this is how he edits it. And, and a, m- many of the later commentaries uh, you know, agree with the way that he edits those words and his understanding of the, of the Beis Now the thing is, the author of the Beis the Shulchan Aruch, didn't, feel, didn't, didn't change it. He put it the way it is. So if you open the Shulchan Aruch, the Shulchan Aruch says, one cannot walk into shul with a long knife and also with an uncovered head. That's how he puts the two together, because he feels that that's exactly what Rabbeinu Peretz was saying. Not an uncovered knife, but rather an uncovered head. Um, so we're going to see a couple of different kind of leniencies um, when one can enter into a shul with a gun. Because basically what, what kind of comes off of that is one cannot enter a shul with a weapon if it's uncovered. If it's covered, we can rely on those who say that that's the correct way to understand the Allah. So you're allowed to come with a covered weapon. So if that's concealed completely concealed obviously um, not if it's just there and it's in a holster it's not considered concealed um, but if it's totally concealed in a bag or something that would be fine but we're, now we're going to talk about let's say in Israel this is obviously for soldiers uh, we're going to talk about having weapons um, out just out um, different leniencies where which would can be used so interestingly there was a rabbi in um, Germany I think whose name was Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein and he was asked an interesting question. This shul wanted to take the rope that was used to hang Jewish inmates in concentration camps and put it up on the wall in the shul with the line, Kidam Avot of Yikar, that Hashem will avenge the blood of those who, 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 who died. And that kind of like shock, talk about uh, uh, shock uh, mechanism, you know? and have that hang in the shul. And he was asked whether that's okay. So he said, well, a rope? I mean, what do you think? You don't think, you don't think so, why not? It's, it's, uh, it just doesn't belong. No, it's just not in, in the spirit of what's going on in the shul. Would you say it's connected to the conversation about a sword, that it shortens life? No, no it's more the holocaust. You think it doesn't belong? Well, the other way to look at it is that it actually it, it does belong. Meaning, just like you hang pictures or you hang slogans or to to bring about a certain feeling, a certain emotion, a certain so this was meant to remind us of those who have passed, of of, of what happened, of of strengthening our connection. Uh, what, is the, what is the words? What are the words? It means literally that Hashem will avenge the blood of those who have passed. That's what it means. Okay. So I the argument that, is... That, that's, a, that's not... It's, it's an appropriate message. I don't think that's the place for that. Yeah, fair enough. These people obviously felt that... Obviously this was very raw. It was right after the Holocaust. And they felt like this is... So that's a different time. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I think today maybe the emotions would be a little different, but this was right after the Holocaust. Um, so, he, so he approached the issue from a halachic perspective, and he said, well, what do we see? A sword is a problem because it shortens life. A rope doesn't shorten life. A rope <laughs> is a rope. So a rope which, like this... Is it, was it in the form of a noose or just a rope? Don't know. I don't know. It's not clear. Um, it's not clear. Whatever the case is, um, he felt that there's a difference between this rope and a gun, a sword, which is inherently used to mm-hmm. shorten life. And therefore, um, he felt that uh, a leniency could be applied, applied. Ultimately, he said that especially since the fact that shuls are made with a tenai. If you remember, we spoke about this idea of a tenai, that shuls are made with a tenai, a condition that the shul will be used for other activities besides for just what a shul is usually meant for. And therefore it works. And therefore, he said, even if the, the, the rope is exposed, out in the open, it's fine. Um, for those two reasons, it's not inherently a weapon. It's also built with a tenai. Okay. Now, let's, point, let's poke some, some problems with this tenai business. What's the wrong? What's wrong with his claim that the tonight makes it makes it permissible? Still don't think it's appropriate for a shul. Okay, true, true. But let's let's look at the um, halachic fact or, or re- realistic factors. So one factor could be that uh, if you remember the whole discussion of a tonight was only kind of, if, in the Shulchan Aruch's view, remember Shulchan Aruch took the most stringent view on when a tenai is useful? And we said that it only is useful in a case of dire need. And for what purposes? For purposes that are not, you know, contrary to what a shul... So let's say eating in a shul. So eating in a shul is not necessarily contrary to a shul or a disrespectful thing in a shul necessarily. Eating in a shul is just doing your own mundane activities in a shul. And that's where a tenai helps. But something like this, which is, you know, it could be argued that it's a weapon, it's, 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 it doesn't like, almost like similar to what you're saying, like it really doesn't have the flavor of what a shul represents. A tenai might not even include it in the tenai. Meaning the tenai was saying, we're not just going to use this for a shul, we're also going to use this for other things which kind of belong in a shul. So eating and drinking, We'll, we'll let it go. Taking a short nap, we'll let it go. It's not inherently disrespectful. But something like just, which are in contrary to a shul, who said it's going to be included in a tenai? And even if it is included in a tenai, a tenai only works to make things permissible in dire circumstances. Like we said, let's say there's no other room in the shul. We could host a Shabbat brachas, do it in the shul. But generally, we don't just allow hosting a pizza party in a shul. So that's the issue that some people raise, and also on a, from a very practical perspective. An Israeli soldier who's out at his, um, his post, and he has a gun slung around his shoulder, there's no tenai there. So that doesn't really solve the issue for him. How would he approach this, this question if he's not in a shul? Does it... So yes, the shul was made with a tenai that one can bring in these things, but, but if you're davening without a shul, just davening, Davening is a holy activity as well. So you have kind of that approach, Rabbi Zilberstein's approach, which is a shul, maybe a tenai, it can, it, the tenai can include this, um, and also maybe um, if it's not a weapon which is directly you know, used to harm. Now, a gun 
probably would be. So here we come to our um, second approach, which is that of the Tzitzeliezer. And he says that um, a gun alone without bullets doesn't, doesn't shorten life. A gun without bullets is useless. A, a magazine without a gun is also useless. So simple. Take the magazine out of the gun, separate them, and then you're fine. So an Israeli soldier can do that. Take the magazine out of the gun, you have a gun, you have a magazine, they're separate. They're both not able to shorten life. Only when they're only a loaded gun could shorten life, and therefore that works. Um, the or third you can put safety on. What? Then you have to put safety on. Yeah? Yeah, fair enough, maybe. And that would make somebody feel a lot more comfortable about the soldier would be a lot more comfortable knowing all he has to do is flip a switch instead of yeah, right. together Right. I mean, though, like in Israel, a lot of soldiers are not necessarily even on duty. No, it's true. Um, they're just, you know, walking around. And they can't leave their gun lying around. So, yeah. um, and the third approach is that when something is being done in in for self defense, instead of actively, um, you know, being used to harm, um, the argument could be that this is not really a weapon to cause harm. This is a weapon to, to do a mitzvah of self defense, um, and therefore even. A gun that has a magazine in it could be the argument could be this is a weapon of self-defense, not a weapon of causing harm, and therefore it could be allowed. Um, but obviously, a person who's not trained in self-defense or, or trained to use it properly uh, would not be um, allowed to, and probably shouldn't be carrying a gun anyway. Right. Um, I actually saw an interesting kind of uh, interview with the guy in Poway. If you remember the, that whole story in Poway. Oh yeah, yeah. So. The rabbi, the Chabad in Poway. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I remember he was interviewed afterwards and he was asked, like, do you think now, you know, rabbis should have guns and whatever? And uh, he actually said no. He's like, actually, you know, my experience of being in a shooting, it makes you realize that, like, unless you are so highly trained, sure. that you know how to respond and how to react, you don't freeze, you don't, it could, it could be the, op- it could actually bring to the opposite effect, which is interesting kind of point um, but yeah so based on, on this approach um, it would work if it's being used in self-defense and that's being used by somebody who could practice self-defense but uh, otherwise not so I think if you want to break it down if it's being used in a dangerous area not a question if it's not being used in a dangerous area there is there's, there's room to say that a tenai could make it work but most people don't really think that that's a good plausible suggestion um, so really you remain with the other two that when it's being used in self-defense, so the argument is self-defense is not meant to cause harm, but rather to, to protect. Um, one argument, and the other argument is that if the gun is disabled, disarmed um, in some way before it's brought into the shul, then that could work as well. Um, and just to note that we're not just talking about in shul, even a person, like we said, the Israeli soldier who's at his, at his, at his post, and wants to daven there, the word that Archas Chaim uses, he says, davening is to connect to the source of life, to pray for life. A shul is a place where we connect to the source of life and we pray for life. So each one, the davening, the shul, they're both independently things that resemble or, or, or uh, talk about life. So even davening outside of a shul, um, or even entering in a shul where there's no davening, both of those places are not places where uh, these type of things should be brought in. So really the question applies um, to both davening even outside of a shul and, and being in a shul um, with, with, uh, without a minion, without davening. 
Okay, that pretty much wraps up the discussion of guns in shul. How about completely different? Um, I was at a cousin's bar mitzvah many, many years ago in a, in a conservative synagogue. And in the, in the sanctuary, behind a glass plastic case, was a sacred door from the Holocaust. It had burned. It was, yeah. it was, it was on, this, on display. Mm. I mean, to me, I, I didn't say anything to anyone about it, but clearly I said, you bury it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting question, though. I mean, I wonder what the halacha is because the other way to look at it is this is, you know, this is such a it's such a powerful symbol. Like, meaning, I, I mean, I, I said bury it. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's what the sacred Torah. That's. What yeah, it's what's meant to be done. Leading, leading, Yeah. Nothing, not what I'm supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you know the you know the A.B. Rockenberg song? Yeah. The A.B. Rockenberg, it's like a famous Jewish composer. So he made a song about the Torah that was made in Vilna. He describes how it was made in Vilna, and basically it's all the, the Sefer Torah talking in Vilna, and the townspeople took me out. We danced, and they put me in the shul. But then I was taken away, and I was hidden, you know, in a place. And now they put me in a box in a museum for people to look at, and uh, like how it longs to come back to the shul. Yeah, yeah, it's a very powerful song, very touching song. Okay, so going back to the idea of um, of honoring a shul. So sometimes you go to people's houses and they have shuls in their houses. So let's say they, they have an Aryan Kodesh in their house. Um, I'm, you know, there was a wealthy individual in Australia when I was there who had a certain part of his living room. You turned around, I think, the bookshelf and the other side of it was, uh, was an Aryan Kodesh. And they would have minyanim sometimes there. And so the question is, is your private base medrash, whatever, considered a shul where these things are a problem or not? Um, and the answer is nope. It's a private place. It's not open. It's not considered a base knesset where people come and gather. It's private. And therefore, these halachas of how to respect and, and, and honor a shul do not apply. Obviously, if a person has a shul on his property, but it's open to the other people, has the regular laws of a shul. But a private thing in your home, which is not open to the public, it's only like when you decide to use it, would not be a problem. Something I actually thought about in my own house because we. Technically, we use our dining room as our shul. <laughs> and uh, we lounge around in our dining room too. And we use it as just a regular room. So it's something I thought about as well. Um, I don't know. It's uh, something to think about. Because on the other hand, you could say that's something which we invite the public to. Um, it's not entirely private. On the other hand, people can just walk in. It's something to think about. Um, well, a lot of these little private in the fine towns and everywhere. Yeah. Where somebody in their basement they set up for Shabbos. Yeah. They're only on Shabbos. Well, even if it's only on Shabbos, I would say it's a permanent thing because if it's doing it every Shabbos, right? It uh, sounds like pretty permanent, even if it's not every day. Yeah. And the front end's upstairs in the dining room. Shabbos morning, and mm-hmm. the current is downstairs. Mm-hmm. And they have, you know, it's a darn Kurdish. I was like, yeah, I think this is what 
Mm. You're, th- you're talking about a specific person. Yeah, I'm just thinking what I was uh, going mm. through the number of times. Yeah. But nothing, I, I, I don't think there's anything else downstairs. Nothing, maybe there is. I mean, they, they don't use it for anything else? I, I mean, I think there is actually, behind the area that's used for davening, there's a, a library, mm-hmm. a Jewish library. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting question. Hello. Okay, so as we discussed before, these uh, issues that crept up in Svarim because they were being handwritten, copied, whatever. So you can, uh, you can imagine the Gemara, which was written 2,000 years ago and has been hand-copied for so long, obviously the issues crept up. And you actually see in the Gemara, there's, on the side, there's like Hagos Bach, who the Bach, famous commentator on the Shulchan Aruch, kind of made some edits to mistakes in the Gemara, and there's lots of that. And one of them appears in this discussion. We talk about a shortcut through a shul. So the Gemara says that one who enters into a shul to daven has permission to go out the other side if it's a shortcut for him. So again. This is the perfect example. Oh, fantastic. Perfect example. Although, like we said, this, this might not have the full status of a shul. It could be a shtibel. Shtibel means it's not a full-blown full, uh, shul. It was built with the intention that other things will happen in this room. Uh, whereas the main sanctuary is a, is a full-on shul. Uh, but this is, a perfect, this is a good example. If we assume this is a full-on shul, great example. You come from the parking lot, you want to get in there. The store is open. Can you take this as a, as a shortcut? So for sure, if you stop, like we said last week, and you just say a pasuk, sit down, say a pasuk, you're good, right? The question is, can you do it without a pasuk? So the Gemara says like this. If you entered into Davin, so let's say there's a minyan, you came to Davin, and it happens to be that there's something in the office that you need to get. So it's a shortcut for you. So then, since you came anyway to Davin, you're allowed to. But the, the other other um, halachic svarim have the girsa of the Gemara have a version of the Gemara saying a little differently that one who enters into a shul to daven it's a mitzvah for him to leave through the uh, that door the so, same door no not the same door see he came in here here's the shul go out this door it's a mitzvah why is it a mitzvah because it's showing if you came if the parking lot's there and the shul's here, and you're going to go going out here, you're basically saying, I'm taking the long route. Not looking to, to run out of shul and take the fastest route. I specifically want to take the long route. Because it's, it's painful for me to leave shul. So, as so ha- often happens, we kind of, we satisfy both. And um, the halakha is like this. You can't go into shul to take a shortcut. Um, but if you go to shul to daven, you can take the opposite door. And the Mishnah Berurah adds, based on that version of the Gemara, it would be a mitzvah actually to take that um, other, you know, other door because it signifies that it's the longer route for you. So you enter into a shul, take the other door or take the further door because that uh, signifies that you're looking to stay in shul longer. Um, so regularly no shortcut, but if you come in anyway, um, then you can go to the sh- you can go take the shortcut door. Uh, obviously, you come in and you say a pasuk, then you're always good. So that's the halachas of taking a shortcut um, through shul. Okay, very good. Um, now we're going to move on to a different discussion. We're going to be talking about um, what some of you may be familiar with is uh, spitting in shul. So this is going to be another area where things have kind of changed from what used to be. So, the, so, so 
the Gemara says like this, that we're going to be making a lot of comparisons between our homes, you know, a palace, and Hashem's home, Hashem's palace, right? Shul is Hashem's home. So Shulchan says like this, even though in a king's palace or in your own home, you would make sure that, you know, place is clean and whatever, but spitting is no big deal. Apparently, back in the day, it was common. Um, so as long as you cover it up quickly or whatever, it's no problem to spit in a shul. Now, these days, the reality has have changed. So spitting in a shul would be a problem. It's another, you know, one of the, one, another area of how, of, this, of, of making sure to respect the shul is spitting in a shul. So you wouldn't be allowed to, to spit in a shul. Now, probably all of you are thinking the same question. What am I thinking? What are you thinking? Okay, so the Hayom Yom brings the custom that when we say we don't want to benefit from the saliva that said these words talking about uh, uh, you know, idolaters bowing down to things which have no value and nothing connected to Kedusha. So we don't even benefit from that saliva, so we spit it out. So what's going on there? So first of all, what's interesting is that Arizal would not do this. Arizal said one shouldn't do this. The Shalah said you shouldn't do it also for two reasons. Number one, people mistakenly spit when they say the words before that. Um, what, what, sorry, people, we say that they say, So people go and bow and then they spit. Hey, you're supposed to be spitting before you bow. <laughs> right? So... That's, first of all, one kind of hazardous uh, thing because you might end up spitting on the words you definitely don't want to be spitting about. So, number one. Um, and the other thing is, is that it gives over a bad message to the nations of the world. It's a very kind of like, it's a very sh- harsh kind of thing to be doing, spitting when talking about those who... who... So the Shalah felt that this was the wrong thing to do. Um, the Chabad custom is this way to, to do so. Obviously the Rabbeim felt um, that this was appropriate and it was okay. So you kind of have this divergence within halacha, some who discourage it, some who don't, and uh, it's a custom. It's a custom. And uh, I, think, I think it became more of an issue when there were rugs instead of uh, stone floors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Now, this is actually quite interesting because it connects to a something that I saw very recently. The Rebbe once walked into Shul. There's a, there's a video of this, you can see it. Rebbe walked into Shul and he saw next to the Oren Kodesh there was like stuff, garbage that hadn't been cleaned up. And the Rebbe, if you ever listen sometimes, the Rebbe is often, you know, very, just very, his voice is calm and, and he's speaking. Sometimes when the Rebbe is very upset, it's like fire. And this is one of the examples. The Rebbe looks at them and he says, the Rebbe says, basically says, like, who's the Akhrai? Who's like the Akhrai here? Like, who's in charge here? Like, what's going on? This place is a filth. And the Rebbe says something very shocking, which I have no idea. The Rebbe says that back in the day, the great rabbis would sweep the shul with their beards to respect the shul. Like, whoa. That's, that's intense. Never heard of that one. And that's that's just what the Rebbe said. And okay, as I'm preparing for this class, they bring this exact thing. There was a rabbi. His name is Rabbi Yaakov ben Yoker. And he was one of the three teachers of Rashi, the famous Rashi. 
This is a rabbi who lived in the 900s. This is a long time ago, over a thousand years ago. And he was a great sage, great teacher. And at a certain point in his life, he became blind and deaf, which effectively meant he couldn't study Torah. So he would, the only thing he could do to respect the shul, he would clean the shul. And he would use his beard to clean the floor. Now, not, don't do this at home, but, uh, but that's where it comes from. And I was like, whoa, like, how cool is that? You hear this, like the Rebbe talking about it, like, and then boom, like it shows up in this class. I found it very interesting. Which, by the way, it actually says that if you want to know if your learning is happening Lashma, if you're learning for the right reasons, you'll see the same concept that you just learned about in a different place. So I'm not saying that I learned Lashma. I mean, probably this was just uh, good luck, but just an interesting thing that sometimes you find something that you just learned somewhere else. It's kind of cool. You know, you just found out about this concept and boom, you find it somewhere else. That? We, we learn Mishnah every day. Yeah. Right? And invariably that, that kind of that happens all. So the Parsha, it's in here, you know, it's brought up. It's, it's just it's very interesting how it happens. Like you never heard of this concept for your whole life. And then all of a sudden you see it twice. Like how did that happen? But the point is, is that... Yeah, make sure your kitchen uh, is properly cleaned up every day. Yes, yes. That's, that's the message. Yes, um, we... Uh, yeah, brooms these days do better jobs than beards, so uh, we're going with that option. So the the point basically of the, of of that discussion is that part of treating a shul with respect is making sure it's clean, um, and therefore a person shouldn't walk into shul with muddy shoes, wet shoes. A person should walk into shul with his clothes clean, his shoes clean. That it shouldn't be that the the shul is getting dirtied through whatever you are coming from. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about the idea of um, lights in a shul, and specifically the Ner Tamid. So, back in the day, obviously, they did use candles. So, uh, the Shulchan talks about using candles, making sure that the shul is well lit, lots of candles. Generally, on Yom Tif, we don't light something else with a candle unless we need that second thing. Um, so, let's say you have a lit candle, so obviously on Yom Tif, you light a smoke, right? You light a light to other things, but we don't do it for no purpose, for no reason. So the Shulchan Aruch nevertheless says is that to light more candles in a shul, to make it more bright, is good. Why? Two reasons. Number one is that the Shechina is in a shul. And to honor the Shechina, we make it more bright, more beautiful to honor the Shechina. And number two is that this is like a Mikdash Ma'at. Our shuls are like a Besam Mikdash. And just as the Besam Mikdash had a constant fire burning so too we have we want to have a constant fire burning now what's going to be the nafkamina the practical difference between the two approaches whether you need an atomic whether you need that light in the front of the shul constantly burning if you're going to say that we're connecting the shul to the base of Mikdash, and just as the base of Mikdash had an atomic this constant fire burning so too we should well then you'll have an atomic but if you're going to say that having lights in a shul is just connected to the Shekhinah coming, that's going to be probably when there's a minion there. So you don't necessarily have to have it all the time. You're going to have it just when the minion's there. So these are, it's discussed. The custom is to have an air tamid, um, definitely the Chabad custom as well. And the Altar Rebbe does talk about have, uh, the meaning of having um, a candle lit, um, you know, even when the minion's not there. 
Um, so there's definitely an idea to have an Eretomid out in the front. And again, the reason for this is, is because since a shul is a Mikdash Ma'at, it's a, it's a mini Beis HaMikdash, since we don't have a Beis HaMikdash today, uh, therefore we replicate the Beis HaMikdash by having that constant uh, fire burning. Okay, last idea we're going to discuss is um, living on top of a shul. So there's kind of two uh, approaches of how to, how to go about this. So since we just we spoke about it, of how shul is like a mikdash ma'at, so when it comes to living on top of a shul, now just to explain, you know, where would you ever live on top of a shul? Happens all the time. Um, examples? Two-story house. Two-story house and shul downstairs. shul downstairs. My brother-in-law has a shul um, in his basement. He, he is a Habana campus. His shul is not like a huge sanctuary. They have a shul in the basement and uh, the upper floors they live on. So they're effectively living on top of a shul. Uh, uh, in, in, in Israel, in Crown Heights, in Borough Park, the bottom, the bottom floor of the building often is a shul, and then people living on top of it. So there's lots of examples of people living on top of shuls. So the question is, is that okay to live on top of shuls? So, so. we're What? I hope so. Right, we don't, want to, uh, we don't want to be knocking down high-rises here. So let's see. So the, it goes as follows. Going back to our discussion of how the shul is a mikdash ma'at, so just as the base, let's, so let's compare it to the base of mikdash. The base of mikdash was not just a one-story building. The base of mikdash had different stories, higher stories. So the halacha was, is that the azara, uh, if we're talking about the base of mikdash, that just kind of gives some sort of idea of what the base of mikdash looked like. Imagine this picture is what we call the heichal. Heichal is, yeah, the building. The actual, you know, when you see pictures of the base of you have that, you know, structure with the, you know, the, the, those protrusions uh, on the top. That's the heichal. That's where the Kodesh Shaktoshim was. That's where the menorah was. That's where the, the big stuff happened. Outside of that was this area called the Azara, the courtyard. Lots of stuff happened there too. The big Mizbeach was there. But it wasn't as holy as this. Now, there was an upper story to the Azara. Even though the Azara was outdoors, there was an upper story kind of like there. So the question is, those parts of the Azara and those parts of the Heichal, what's their status? So the Allah is like this. In the Azara, those upper stories, permanent kind of activity um, of, of mundane things wouldn't be allowed. But temporary stuff would be. So to use it on a temporary basis for not holy things would be allowed, permanent not. However, the upper story of the Heichal, even on a temporary basis, would not be allowed. So the question is, do we compare the upper stories of a shul, right, the second thing on top of a shul, to the Azara, or do we compare it to the Heichal? That's the question. So, fantastic question. You're asking based on last week's, last week's class, right? Or what, just what you know. That there, was a, there was a gallery where, the, where they would watch. Great question. That gallery was actually the Ezra's Noshim, which was before the Azar. So if you walked into the base of Mikdash, first you came into Ezra's Noshim, which is where that, those balconies were. Then you came to the Azara. Then you came to the Heichal. So this was before. But good question. 
So you got to be careful with kids these days because they learn chidon. You know this chidon thing? Chidon is like this this challenge to learn all of the... Yeah, something like that, but like more in depth. And so like these kids know stuff that like you never heard of. So I thought you were going to like throw some fact about them and like throw me off here. Um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, think about it. It's, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. So they weren't like selling apartments there. Um, but, uh, but there was stuff. I mean, for example, the way they would clean the Kodesh Akdashim was, that was you, know, you know about this. So it was clearly some sort of system that you were able to get. Okay. Um, so that's the question. Do we compare it to the Azara or not? So the Maram, who was a Rishan, um, initially said it compared it to the Azara, uh, which, would, which should mean that temporary basis is okay, permanent basis, not okay. Uh, however, he, he, wasn't, he was a little bit in doubt, and he said perhaps we should compare it to the Heichal, and so he felt that we really, even on a temporary basis, shouldn't be used. Now, back to our running theme that we're seeing this whole class, that the writings of those who wrote a long time ago kind of got lost, got whatever, so a tshuva of the Rambam, a writing, a, a response of the Rambam, who the Rambam lived almost a thousand years ago, was found, and it was written there that any usage above the Oren Kodesh directly is a problem, but the rest of the space is allowed. So that's much more lenient. So if we're going to go with Maram, which is kind of a traditional Ashkenazi psak because he was a Rishon, and that's what we knew about, for a long time, well then we're just going to say, like the Maram said, that perhaps it's compared to the Heichal, and therefore the whole thing is a problem, even on a temporary basis. But if we're going to follow this tshuva of the, of the Rambam, who is a Sephardi, um, well then it's going to turn out that the whole area could be okay, just of that area on top of Dorian Kodesh. So who should we follow? How does this go? So it, the, the, so it basically falls according to party lines. The, uh, the Avadu Yosef, who was the Sephardi chief rabbi in Israel, um, ruled, like the Rambam, the area on top of the Aryan Kodesh is a problem to use for any purpose. And he actually suggested putting a heavy thing in that, you know, kind of calculating where it is, put something heavy there so it shouldn't be moved. The rest of the room is fine. But... Um, That's a two-story building. Just a floor above. What about, all, let's say it's a six-story building. Oh, great question. One second. Um, sorry, so before we get to, to Avad Yosef a second, um, the Shulchan Aruch, who was also a Sephardi, but did not see the Tshuva of the Rambam, because, again, Shulchan Aruch was in the 1500s, and this Tshuva of the Rambam was clearly only found later. So he didn't know about it. So Shulchan Aruch passing like the Rambam, that any usage is a problem. Um, now, the, the Ramah adds that, let's say, I'll give you an example. Um, the shul, the Chabad Israel Center, um, is a two-story two building. It used to be um, not a shul. It used to be very much not a shul. It used to be a church, right? So those rooms above the shul um, predate the shul status of the shul. So the Ramah says is that if that's the case, the shul on top, the, the room on top of the shul 
is okay. That's something that Ramah adds, which is an uh, uh, interesting point. Um, the Ram, but the Mishnah Baruch says that even in such a situation, um, best not to use it, especially the area on top of the Arnav page. So basically, we're seeing that the, the kind of the, the down the line Psaki is like the Maram, Shulchan Aruch passing is like the Maram, that you should not use the room on top, definitely not the area on top of the Arnav Kodesh. And the Ramah is saying that if the room on top predated the, sh the Shul, then it's okay. How are we doing with time? Eight o'clock. Okay. Oh, Shul's eight twenty. Okay. So let's let's finish this point. Um, now. Now the the chida. Um, the chida was a Sephardi Pesach. Chida was uh, was famous because he traveled the world, and he wrote like forty svarim, like prolific writer. He traveled the world, so he got to see Minhagim from all over the world. Very interesting personality and very important personality because he was very unique in that way. Not a lot of Rabbonim saw everything. He saw everything because he traveled to Europe. He was a fundraiser for the United Israel, so he saw everything. And he said the following, and this is a concept you sometimes find in Allah quite often, which is that the fact that one rabbi wrote something, had he seen other things, he wouldn't have ruled that way. So in this case, the Maram had a problem. He wasn't sure, is it like the Azorah, is it like the Heichal? So he ruled stringently. Had he seen that the Rambam clearly wrote that it's not a problem and only the area on top of the Aaron Kodesh is a problem, said the Chidah, no question he would have ruled like a Rambam. And so he wants to say the, Mar the Maram's Psaq and the Shulchan Aruch's Psaq wouldn't even stand had, had they been aware of the Rambam, which, is very, which kind of like throws this whole thing on its head. And based on that, the Avad Yosef, like we said, ruled that um, it's okay. You can use the room on top of a shul besides the area of the Oren Kodesh. And what about the floors? Like you said, the sixth floor on top. See, he said there's a concept in Allah called Let's say somebody comes up with a novel approach, novel idea, novel. So we'll say, okay, we'll take in, but we're not going to extend this further. So, for example, in this case, where we clearly have the Rambam saying the room on top is okay, we're not going to now say, well, the Maram argues, and therefore even the sixth floor is going to be a problem. Even if you want to argue that we're not going to allow the room right on top because the Maram said you shouldn't, even though the Maram said you could, we're not going to extend the Maram's problem to even higher floors. Okay. So it seems like everything's heading in the direction of use it, not a problem. The Rambam's what to, to, to lean on, it's okay. Question: How could it be that they did? Now, what's the time frame between the Rambam and, and these other? The Rambam's writing. I believe the Rambam's writing is lost. Yeah. They, they discovered it after the Nevi'im Exactly. Okay. He's in 1200 there, 1300. Yeah. Within 100 years or so. The Maram lived. The Rambam was born in 1135. Yeah. The Chidah lived in the 1700s, 1600s. This is 500 years later. Yeah. Um, and the 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 was in the 1500s. So obviously, it was found somewhere in between there. The Chidah's you think the Rambam would have been well dispersed by that time? I guess that's what I'm, I'm thinking, but it wasn't so well known. Yes, that's that's the crazy part about those times is that yeah. you had you had amazing things written by amazing rabbanim and got lost. You know the Alter Rebbe right. wrote so the whole Shulchan Aruch, and yet we have a fraction of it. And you would think the Alter Rebbe the whole Shulchan Aruch. You imagine how much time you put into that. Gone, burnt, finished, because uh, the cloud didn't exist yet. 
And uh, once it was burnt, it was burnt. And yeah. uh, no getting it back. So, okay. So now everything's kind of headed in this direction. But here's where it gets a little bit more dicey. First of all, Mishnah Brewer writes that the area on top of the shul definitely should not be used for a bathroom or anything which is just totally inappropriate. Now, um, the Taz writes about this, that having something like that on top of a shul, the reason, why, the reason why it's really a problem is because it actually prevents the tefillahs of happening downstairs from ascending to, to Shamayim. Where do you see this concept in Halacha? That it actually, it, it, we find that if a person is standing somewhere and there's something, you know, you know very unclean on the floor and there's a, a minion over there, so even if the minion's holding by Kedusha, you, since you're between, there's something there on the floor and you're on the other side of it, you should not say Amin. Because that thing kind of like prevents there being a, 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 you jo- being joined um, with that, that group. And the Taz wants to apply the same thing to having something on top of a shul. It actually prevents the tefillahs of that shul um, ascending on high. Um, and that's, that's the reason for not having a, a thing. Um, now. We have to have a hole in your shawl, so it just. What? We have to have a hole in your shawl, so that. A hole in your shawl? Oh, I see. You know, the, you know the story of the Baal Shem Tov? I'm, I'm going to, if, if any of you need to go or whatever, we're way past time. So, but if you're here till 820, we can, we can talk. So the Baal Shem Tov famously had a, a time when he approached a shul. It was not a Hasidic shul. And uh, he stood outside in Davin, I think. And they asked him, the shul, why don't you go inside in Davin? He said, I can't walk in. The shul's, the shul's full, there's no space. What are you talking about? There's plenty of space. He said, you understand. It says that uh, Ava and Yura, love and fear of Hashem, are like wings. Ava and Yura, two wings, they're like the wings that carry out Philos to Shemayim. But what happens if there's no Ava and Yura? If davening is just being done by rote, it's just, well, you know, it's mumbling the words. So they can't fly. So where do they go? It's like pollution, you know? Get stuck in the environment, in the shul. And so there's no room. The Baal Shem Tov, who is keenly in touch with these things, couldn't, he, he, he couldn't fit in the shul. The shul is, is too uh, full with uninspired words of davening. And uh, that's, that's what he did. Um, I'm sure he was trying to bring out a point more than the physical space of the shul, but uh, the point definitely got across. So uh, he's saying about having a hole in a shul. Um, I think more Ava and Europe will definitely do the trick. Uh, it is an interesting concept to say that the room on top um, doesn't let the tefillos go. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's an interesting concept. But clearly, the Taz felt that it's applicable here. Um, okay, now as we're talking about the Taz, here's a, a interesting thing that he wrote. Taz lived in Krakow for a certain period of time, and um, he wrote. Unfortunately, he lost some of his sons. Some of his his children passed away during his lifetime. And he said that he believes that the reason why this happened to him was because he lived on top of the shul in Krakow. As the Rav in Krakow, clearly he was given a room, a place to live on top of the shul. And we felt that as a consequence of him davening, of him living on top of the shul in Krakow, this was what came about. Pretty hectic. Um, and therefore, the Taz was full on, you know, there should not be anything happening on top of the shore. 
And so the Ashkenazi approach, kind of as an extension of that, was very strict. So you would kind of have the Sephardi approaches, like we were saying, the Rambam and then and, and the Chidah, and you know, no worries. But the Taz and, and the approach that he took kind of took everything, that Ashkenazi approach, very, very um, strict. Um, so, yeah. And, and, and even for the rooms above that, even for the floors above. Um, now, this is obviously very relevant today in Israel, etc. So what should we do? Um, so if it's temporary, there's obviously more room to be lenient because you could say maybe it's the Azara and the Azara is allowed. If it's permanent, so we're back to that. So how do we, how do we classify it? So um, again, if it's the area on top of the Aryan Kodesh, problem. Really nothing to talk about. The question is the rest of, of the space. So the fact is that many Hasidish Stieblach have um, you know, rooms on top of them. It's like a little Stiebel, and this is the same thing in, in Crown Heights. So in Borough Park, you find a shul in the bottom of, the, of, a, of an apartment building where on a Shabbos Mincha, nobody wants to walk you know, 10 minutes, they just do the minion there. So that has the status of a Stiebel. It's not really a, a permanent shul. Different things happening there. There's different functions. There's also, it's also used as a shul. So these apartment buildings, we could kind of resolve this issue by saying that the shul, the bottom of the apartment building, is more of a shtibel than a full-on shul. So that's one uh, um, possible approach to, to resolve this. Or that it was didn't become a shul until after the uh, building was already finished. Oh, that's, a very, a, that's an interesting point as well. Unless, unless though, the, the, sh- the building was built with that in mind. Because... Well, that's- don't right yeah okay yeah I mean but if, for example like there are there are there are definitely um, like let's say in Crown Heights I don't you, you, do you know Crown Heights well so if you know Crown Heights a little bit there's um, like two big apartment buildings on Crown Street where the bottom floor was clearly made to be a shul like it's it's, it's a big open room and whatever and they do lots of functions you could say that it's a shtibel uh, because of like all the different things they want to do, but it was clearly built to be a shul. So I mean, if it would be valid to say that, you know, so uh, but but it's a, that's a very good point as well. Now, but there is one kind of more thing to uh, keep in mind to make this valid is what the Avnei Nezer wrote. Avnei Nezer was one of the major Hasidic rebbe. So he wrote that these large apartment buildings, and especially in uh, you know places like uh, Russia and whatever, where that's how people live. people live in these massive apartment buildings. The reason to say that it's okay is that since it would be extremely difficult to find a place to live without allowing it, especially if we're going to say that all the floors on top are a problem as well, so the kind of the minig um, has become to, to follow the, the Sephardi psak in this one, um, which allows for it. So even though the traditional Ashkenazi psak until more recently was to be very strict with it, since it made it impossible to find a place to live, especially in areas where this is how people live in, in high-risers, um, it would be it would be permitted. So that was a. So we discussed a lot of things today. Maybe we'll run it through next week. Um, but uh, thank you for joining. Thank you.